The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Boasting is one of those words that is kind of hard to make sound okay. Should we, can we ever boast of our accomplishments or of our accolades? Can we ever kind of take pride in our work and say so? We've all seen pride go really ugly, be bad. And we all know that, generally speaking, to be humble is a good thing, and probably most of us know that the Bible says that God opposes the proud repeatedly, says that. So, maybe not. But on the other hand, as we will see, our passage for today also, repeatedly, presents to us proper boasting. As the Apostle Paul takes something that he's proud of and puts it up in front of us, something he's proud of about himself and would be proud of in others too, a type of boasting that we should see and want to follow him into, want to partake in ourselves because God approves of it. So there is some boasting that's right. And that's what we're going to consider today in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Last week in verses 8 to 11, we saw Paul get specific about some great affliction that he had faced, and how God had intentionally purposed in it to grow Paul in dependence on him. God does that sort of work with, with Paul and with us, intentionally working and intentionally using affliction and suffering in our lives to, to move us, to remake us, to sweetly break us of our tendency to depend on ourselves and to rebuild us into people who depend on him. That's how he works in us as individuals. And then as we are then in a the part of a, of a church, as, as a body around a person suffering, what happens there is that a partnership gets built and we help one another, particularly in prayer, resulting in thanksgiving as we see God act. And so we all are growing in dependence on him. That's what verse 11 spoke of. That was last week, the, the kind of the conclusion of the introduction to the letter. And now as we move into the body of this letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul starts off right away with a boast. That's what we're going to look at. Let me read verses 12 to 14 and then draw two observations from them. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us, as we will boast of you. A couple of verses there, First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll make two observations from them. Here's the first. We should pursue and take pride in a life of sincere integrity towards others. We should pursue and take pride in a life of sincere integrity towards others. 
Verse 12, Paul right off starts with something that he, he boasts of. Remember that the plural our or we is actually Paul talking about himself throughout this letter here. So he has a boast and he wants others to know about it, which right away alerts us to the fact that there are some boasts that are good and right, some things to be proud of that it's okay to talk about. And of course, not all of them, but the difference is going to circle around to whom do you ultimately give glory? We'll come and talk about that a little bit later, but that's what's going to make this boast righteous and right and make it right for us to want to be able to boast similarly so. So here he's coming out of verse 11. What Paul is proud of about himself is the reason, logically, that he and the Corinthian church should be tight, should be partnered with each other, and not at odds with one another. Of course, verse 11 talked about, you must help us, you must be partnered with us. That's what Paul wants, but perhaps you recall from earlier weeks that one of the underlying issues through this whole letter is the fact that not everybody in and around the church in Corinth actually liked Paul. Some of them weren't tight with him, but were at odds with him. They didn't want to partner with him. Paul did not match what was expected for a man sent from God, or at least what some of the false teachers who arrived later told the church they should expect from a man sent from God. He was not all that impressive. He was not powerful and glorious. He was characterized by affliction and suffering all the time. Everywhere he goes, he gets a kick in the head, sometimes literally. And that just wasn't what should be for a man sent from God. So they wondered. Didn't match. Nor did this. As we'll find out, Paul had said that he was going to come from Ephesus to visit them in Corinth and then travel on to Macedonia, kind of northern Greece, and then come back to visit them in Corinth. At one point, he said that, but he didn't do it, which opened him up to accusation from those who already wanted to undermine him. See, they said, he does something after he said something else. He's inconsistent. His words don't match his actions. He says what he thinks you want to hear. He takes the temperature of the room and, like a thermometer, moves to match it. And he says and, and speaks in ways that are designed to please you, to appease you, to make you happy. But all along, what he's saying, in, in word or in writing, that's what verse 13 is about when it mentions his writings, letters, he communicates with vague and subtly misleading language, the carefully crafted language of the consummate politician. This Paul is a master shapeshifter. He's a chameleon. Always working with the goal of getting everyone to go along with his plans and goals while leaving you hopefully thinking that he's on your side. But now we have seen through him and found him out. If you can't listen to him and, and trust him, you can't be certain of what he says. You can't even trust his word about his travel plans. How can you trust anything else he says? Probably when he told us to discipline that one guy in the church, it's because he doesn't like him. Probably when he tells you to give money, it's because he's greedy. That's the position, more or less, of a, a strong minority in the church trying to drive in a wedge between Paul and the bulk of the congregation by raising a suspicion about his integrity. 
That's the context into which he writes. That's, that's underlying, that's actually context, not just for our passage, but it's underlying a lot of what this book is about. A lot of what this book is about is Paul defending himself and showing who he really is and talking about what he's really about. It's the context into which Paul writes this passage. It's the context in which he's eventually going to have to step into in person. He knows there's, there's, a, there's a gap there, and he very much wants to close that gap. He very much wants partnership with this church, like he said in verse 11. He wants, he wants to be tight with them, and so he's going to address this issue here and in what follows. And so right off, verse 12, this is my boast. This is what I'm proud of about myself, and I commend it to you now, the testimony of my conscience. Which, of course, isn't automatically always accurate for everyone. Conscience is that part that God put into us that kind of serves as an internal monitor of sorts. The little voice in your head or maybe in your heart or some people say it in your gut that kind of pokes you with some convicting uneasiness if you're doing something wrong or maybe affirms you if you're doing something right. It's real. It's in us. It's a good thing. It's from God. It is, however, by no means foolproof or fail-safe. Conscience can be uninformed. Conscience can be hardened. Conscience can be ignored, drowned out. It's kind of like one of those low brake pad indicators on your car. It's recently happened to us. You know, when you get the low brake pads, there's some element in the pad that kind of begins to squeal and kind of rub, and you hear it and it alerts you, tells you there's a problem. Well, you can make the problem go away by rolling up the window and turning on the radio. And now the brakes are just fine again, right? That's how a lot of people deal with conscience. Either they don't know what that means, they're uninformed. A conscience won't convict you of what you don't know. So if people are unaware of what God's truth actually is, we see this all the time in the world, they won't be convicted of something that they are unaware of. Or if convicted, they just roll up the window and turn up the radio and drown it out. Which is why we need God's word to inform us and God's spirit in us living and us willing to listen, sensitive to it, so that we can have a conscience that functions well. And certainly that would be the case with the Apostle Paul. His conscience would be well informed by God's word and very sensitive to God's spirit. And what Paul takes great comfort in and is reassured of that when he lays his head on the pillow at night, his conscience says to him, well done. That was good. That was right towards others and pleasing towards God. You should be proud of that, Paul. Of what specifically? Well, I behaved in the world. I live with consistently. I behave with simplicity and godly sincerity, he says in verse 12. Simplicity. Not as in not complex, but simplicity as in opposed to duplicity. There's no deception. There's no deliberate clouding. No smokescreen. No equivocating. No trying to say what I think you want to hear. He speaks the truth and he means it. 
There is a full-orbed sincerity in all of Paul's interpersonal conduct. In the moment as I'm living, and then later as I look back at it, I'm proud to say that my conscience is clear. I have been and am always sincere, forthright, full of integrity. That's me everywhere, and I can say supremely so with you through all the complicated stuff that we dealt with. Come on, guys, I lived with you for close to two years, and then we've interacted in writing a bunch of times ever since about all kinds of complicated issues. Read 1 Corinthians. There's a lot of complicated issues in that church. We have been with, don't, don't you know me, this is what I have been with you. Sincere and full of integrity. That's how I live. In verse 13, that's how I write. I write... And you read and you understand and you agree. I I get it. That's what Paul says. We understand. Somebody's coming along and trying to make you think something else. Make you suspect something. That's not the case. What you see is what you get. That's who I am. That's what I say. That's what I mean. And then watch what he does here in in a little twist of language. The end of 13, the beginning of 14. It's a little hard to follow, but what he's trying to do here is move from how they, they read and they understand and they get him in his letters to how they're going to read and understand and get him, him himself personally. He hopes now, but certainly one day in heaven. I want you to get me fully like you get the letters fully. You only get me partially now. The fact that we're having this conversation reveals that you're not quite sure about me. But one day, you will boast in me too. That's what he says. In the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us, me, as we will boast of you. Paul Paul boasts of the Corinthians. They're like a trophy. They're evidence of what God has done in them through him. But what he says, interestingly, is that one day... You're going to see all of this clearly. You're going to know everything, and I'm completely confident of this. So when all the truth is fully known, you yourselves will say, well done, Paul. You lived among us. You treated us well. You spoke clearly with integrity and sincerity. Well done, Paul. You're going to say that yourselves. In heaven one day fully, but actually I don't want that just that. I want that now. I want us to live like that now. Not just partially getting it. Let's live like that fully now. Treating one another this way, knowing it, recognizing it, and rejoicing in it, even boasting in it. Now. Not just then in heaven. That's what he's after for himself, with them, and for all the church. That now we be people, partnered with other people, who back and forth, because we're all always an individual and the group. We're all always individual and the group. Individual and the group. That the individual and the group always would be able to say, I boast of how I have been full of integrity towards you, and you, when you fully know the truth, you boast back of how I have been full of integrity with you. We know it, we see it now, not just then. That's the thrust of the text. Spoken about himself, but then indirectly commended to all of us. A life of sincere integrity in interaction with people. 
something we should desire and be proud of. Which probably strikes a lot of us right off as obvious. Because we're probably not surprised to find the Bible commending sincerity and integrity. We wouldn't expect other. So you come to this and you hear it and you probably kind of in your mind nodding and wondering what the big deal is. It, it's, it's sort of expected. Okay, yes. So let's circle back through it one more time and think about why. And then examine yourself and ask your own conscience, is that me? So why does the Bible, uh, sure, but why does the Bible, why does Paul in, in this way or in any way commend to Christians a life of simple, upright, forthright integrity in dealing with others? Well, in large part, that's who God is. That's the character of God himself. If we're going to walk with God, we've got to walk like that with others. It, you may notice one, in the footnote here that another way to translate one of these words is something related to the word holy. There is something that is right at the core of who God is, what God is like that he wants to to replicate in us that he's trying to build into in us. And you can't say, I'm a Christian, and I want to walk with God, and I want to know you, but I'm going to deal with people contrary. You can't say that. It's what God's making us to be. It's what he wants us to be like in the world. There is something that lines up very closely with what he's trying to work into us and the type of community that he wants to build now and the type of community that he is going to build in heaven. He calls us to walk like this because this is who he is and what we are going to be and what the world needs to see about him and be drawn to. So it's important in replicating God. It's important in honoring God. And it is important then thinking about other people. If you're going to walk with God, you've got to walk with people like this. If you want to minister for God, you've got to walk with and minister to people like this. One of the biggest reasons that Paul addresses this issue with this church is he recognizes this wedge that's being driven in between me and the church, it's not just about my buddies. Paul doesn't have a need to be like best buds with people who live hundreds of miles away and he sees very rarely. Paul recognizes that this wedge that's being driven in, it cuts off ministry. I want to partner with them in ministry to them and in ministry with them into others. But this is separating them from the truth that God would bring to them through me. So they're being cut off. They are being hurt by this accusation, this, this subtle underlying wedge. For the sake of ministry to them and ministry through them, I want to clear this up. If we're going to be ministers, this is particularly true for anybody who's a capital M minister. This is critical for me. But all of us who are lowercase m ministers, 
Any, any pastor's ministry in a church is over when this goes. Weird for me to say that, perhaps. But it is over when the integrity piece goes. Now, it may last on for years after that because the, because the guy may be really popular and really powerful, might have a great TV show and whatnot. But effectively speaking, it is over when the integrity piece dies. And in a smaller way, the same for each of us who are lowercase m ministers. Your ability to minister the truth about this God who is a God of integrity and sincerity and holiness. Your ability to minister that truth to somebody else has to cross a bridge of this sincere integrity and in dealing with people in a way that is forthright and true. Because if it doesn't cross that bridge, it won't cross any bridge. It won't cross. People will not hear and will not believe a message about a God of truth from a person who's a liar. They will not hear a message about a, a God who, who is trustworthy and can be relied upon from a person who can't be and isn't. It is, it is important, integrity and sincerity, to be who you say you are and to mean what you say is important, both in the eyes of God and for the sake of other people. And and in fact, it is important for you yourself. There is great strength and relief and confidence that comes to a person whose heart and mind is in this place where Paul's is. It comes to a person who can feel and know this about yourself. I lay my head on the pillow at night and my conscience says to me, my sharp, right, clear conscience says to me, you dealt with that person, with these people well in a way that God, in God's eyes, is honoring and pleasing and if they knew it all, would be honoring and pleasing to them too. That at the end of time, when they see it all, they will say, well done of you. If the email gets forwarded on to somebody else and they read it, they'll say, okay. If they accidentally overheard you, what you said will strike them as, okay. It is a great relief to not have to fear getting caught. And there's a great boldness that then can come from, from feeling like, this is, this is what I am, this is what I mean, I'm going to put it out there, and I'm only going to say what I actually mean, and I am not going to manipulate you, I'm not going to try to use some ulterior motive, I'm not going to try to get my goal done through, I'm not going to work the situation, I'm going to lay it out there, I'm going to disavow, think of how this gets echoed again in chapter 4, I'm going to disavow all methods of manipulation and coercion and whatnot, here it is, Take it or leave it. That's me. That's the truth. There is a ton of strength in that. Confidence and rest. You live with no regrets for how you've carried yourself. And the type of relationships you have with the people around you are clean. That is delightful. It's sweet. They know you. 
don't doubt you, but trust you because you're known and trustworthy, not because they're fooled. That's great. It is sweet to live like that with other people. It is sweet to live in a community where everybody deals with everybody like that, where one and the group, one and the group, one and the group is always that way with one another. That, That is the best kind of community. Unknown in the world. Unknown in the world. But what the church is supposed to be and what heaven will be It's important to God and important for the sake of witness to other people and important for us ourselves. Don't you want to be this kind of person to deal with others always in holiness and sincerity and forthrightness, full of integrity? So what does your conscience tell you about you? Is that you? Or, as you think it through, where are you tempted to massage the truth, to kind of stand in a certain way? To show your good side. Always. You find that you're in some relationships constantly characterized by You might not say it, but manipulation. Somebody who's useful for you, useful to you, and you keep using them. Are you hiding things from people to their hurt? Sometimes we should hide things from people for their benefit. Are you hiding things from people for their hurt, for your own benefit? You're misleading them. This kind of life should be pursued. It's something to want and to be proud of. Is it you? If you want it, if you want to grow in it, then a natural next question is how? How do you get there? That's what takes us to the second point. Such sincere integrity towards others comes from gospel renewal within. This kind of sincere integrity towards others, individually and in a corporate community, that out there comes from gospel renewal within, in here. If you think just for a second about what Paul's talking about there and how, how Paul is and you want that, then you, you wonder, how does that come about? Do, do I just do it? Do I just be sincere? Do we just be truthful and clear? Do we just speak honestly? Do we just stop dodging and shading and manipulating? Do just do that? Well, yes and no. Yes... We need to be honest about something here. Sometimes, I was talking with somebody this last week about how sometimes in contexts like ours, 
where we very much stand on and very much want to be clear on the work of God in us to change us, like I'm going to talk about, that sometimes in contexts like that, we forget something else, that we actually have to do something. Paul talks about the word behave, which is about behavior, doing, walking, living. That, that's all over the Bible. It's all over Paul's language. Paul, the, God, the, the apostle of God's grace, often talks about live, walk, behave, do. So it's not about we don't have anything to do. No, we, we have to do it. The problem is we don't just do it. But we have to do it. We have to think where, I just, I just at the end of the last point talked about where do you find yourself tempted to shave off the truth or massage it? Or when do you find yourself manipulating people to use them, withholding things? You got to notice those things and say, I'm going to stop doing that. Not, I'm going to wait till God stops me from doing that. Don't. Speak differently. Say other words. We've got to kind of take something, a whole, a whole of our lives there, and actually do, but not just do, because there's something critical that underlies it, as there always is. So there, there is a do it, but not a just do it. Like all the Christian life, there's a walk, how? So we do have to walk, how? Okay, let's look at the text again, because this is really important. Verse 12, right in the middle, he behaved with godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Three little phrases that tell us a ton. First, it's godly sincerity. Or as the NIV puts it, sincerity which is from God. That's a helpful way of saying that because it's not like there are really like two types of sincerity, godly sincerity and ungodly sincerity. It, it's not a statement of quality. It's a statement about origin. Where did it come from? It came from God. It's not a product of a person's highly developed ethics or polite upbringing or natural propensity towards boldness and truth-telling. Paul has something that has come from God. If you're thinking through the boasting part, that's why he can boast of it. It's come from God. And he further explains, how did I do that? Well, not by earthly wisdom. Literally, not by fleshly wisdom. Key word for Paul, often flesh, meaning something that comes from something in our nature that's fallen. This is not by fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. This comes from God. Let me say it again not by way of wisdom from my human flesh, by human teaching, training, or advice, or techniques. I'm not a product of how to win friends and influence people. I haven't decided that honesty is the best policy, so that's what I'm going to go about doing. All kinds of people, all kinds of life coaches, all kinds of seminar teachers and book writers and sociologists and psychologists will tell you all kinds of things about how to live with integrity and be good and sincere and gracious in your interpersonal skills. A lot of that's right, and in the end, it doesn't work. Not for the long haul. And in the very end, it's nothing to boast of because when all is said and done, it comes from yourself. 
That's not where I got this, says Paul. I am what I am. This came from God by the grace of God. That's our needed focus. So you're thinking, I, I have, I guess, kind of naturally, expectantly had something held in front of me that seems good and right, a, a sincerity and integrity, and I've thought through some ways that I'm a little short or a little inclined, a little tempted away from that. I want to get that or I want to grow in that. How? By the grace of God. How does grace from God bring to us the integrity from God, godly integrity? Well, put simply, I'll say this twice, think this through as I'm saying it. By driving into us the certain present and future love of God and trustworthiness of God, changing us to live dependent on God, not ourselves. The grace of God drives into us the certain present and future love of God. It presses it into us so that you see it, feel it, know it, or certain of it, and drives into us the present and future trustworthiness of God so that you see God's character, that he loves you and that he's trustworthy. And that then changes us to live dependent on the God who loves us and the God who is trustworthy rather than to live dependent on ourselves. That's how the grace of God works. That's the path we have to follow. Think about it again. When a person deals, let's say, deceitfully with another person, when a person speaks vaguely so as to avoid saying something is unpopular, something like that, ever done that? When you do that, why do you do it? A person does that, he wants to avoid the conflict Avoid the awkwardness, the anger that will arise in the relationship. If I say this, it's going to be awkward. If I say this, we're going to butt heads. If I say this, the person's going to go this way, and I want them to go this way. There's going to be some sort of awkwardness, some sort of conflict, some sort of anger, and I want to avoid that. He wants to stay on the good side of the person, keep the other one's opinion of him good, maybe continue to enjoy the benefits of the relationship interpersonally, maybe even economically if it's a business relationship. To put it differently, when you do that, when this person does that, your eyes are fixed here on this world and you fear the suffering that somehow may come your way from that other one you're interacting with. The pain or the hurt you may feel, the good you may lose. That's why you shave, massage, hide. 
You fear what you may receive or fear what you may lose, and you're not thinking about or believing and certainly not comforted by any sense of God and his power for you and his delivering of you into true life now and especially the life that is to come. You're not looking there at him. You're looking right here at the relationship in front of you, fearing a death of some sort here and now, and therefore then turning to rely on your own techniques and your own skills to keep yourself safe and secure your best possible life now. To be blunt, if that's not blunt enough, duplicity, insincerity, deception, and two-faced lack of integrity is driven by a love of self and unbelief. Not love of God, love of neighbor, dependence on him. That's the problem. It may not feel like that. It may feel like something much more casual in the hallway when you kind of just turn to show your good side. But brothers and sisters, we got to understand that then to understand how the grace of God relieves us of that. we got to face that right straight face on. That's what's going on in here. Love of self, not love of neighbor. Dependence on self, not dependence on God. And the answer to that love of self and dependence on myself, unbelief, is not, well, just don't do that. It's not, just don't do that. That kind of heart issue, the love of me that's trying to protect me and the dependence on my techniques to get the protecting done, that kind of heart issue is only healed by the grace of God poured into you. The grace of God that pours into you, what What did I already say here? What did we already consider twice? that pours into you the love of God for you, past, right now, and always. The faithfulness of God in the past, right now, and always. The, the certainty, the assurance, the fullness of this God. I'm looking out here at a death, and I, and I fear, and I see a loss in front of me, and the grace of God says, oh, no, 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 Christian. Christian. Lift up your eyes and see there is a God who reigns and who has been, who is, and who always will be full of vast, wide, long, high, deep love for you and can be faithfully trusted to care for you in every possible way now and after you die to bring you to life. The grace of God has to lift up your eyes and show him to you and who he is for you. The problem is you don't see him when you're shape-shifting and a chameleon and deceiving. God in Christ has provided the answer that we need to duplicity and manipulation. He's provided Christ crucified, a sure sign of his love for you, a sure payment of all of your self-loving, self-depending ways. Because it is sin. 
And Christ came and loved you and gave himself for you to pay for that sin and then to pour into you every bit of evidence that you need and by his spirit to constantly push into you and drive into you and press into you and change you. I am who I am and I am for you and you are in my hand safe. What can man do to you? Well, maybe a lot because there is no guarantee that when I speak the truth to this person, that they'll like me and it'll go well. No, they may hate you and it may go terribly. Okay. They can't separate you from the love of God in Christ. He's given you with Christ everything that you need. And he's working all things together for the good of you who loves him. And in fact, that's great comfort in the midst of all that suffering that maybe God brought to you, in fact, to show that to you, to press it into you even further on purpose, using affliction to mature you and make you trust him. God has done great things for you in this one who loved you and promises to be with you and never to leave you nor forsake you. His past grace at the cross His past grace in your life should be evidence for you now and for the future that he's who he says he is, that he's trustworthy. He's the God of integrity and faithfulness towards you. What do you have to fear from the men and people around you? That's how the grace of God produces the sincere integrity of God in us. Let me make sure that that is explicitly connected. You move away from integrity because you loved yourself and trying to protect yourself. When God presses into you by grace, strong evidence, you don't need to take care of yourself. I got you. And I love you. Being first loved by him, we love him and others. Being assured of our security in his hands, we are set free to put her life at risk and give it all away. And so the need, the inclination in you to protect yourself is released. So I want to speak then like God to honor God. And I want to speak then and behave like God to do you good, to create a bridge across which I may minister. And I want to be like that because actually that's that's where life for me is found. The grace of God produces that in you. But you must still do two things. Meditate on that grace. And as an old Puritan once said, I love this phrase, squeeze the life out of the promises. He talked about, this old Puritan, talked about how you can take any passage of Scripture and you can find the promises of God in it. You can take a passage that says, I will be with you. Well, that's a promise pretty explicitly. You can find a promise that says, like, God is righteous. Well, that's not really a promise. It's more like a statement, isn't it? No, that's a promise if you think about it. It's promising 
God is righteous. God promises to always be righteous in dealing with you. God promises to never be unrighteous. You can always then trust him. It's a promise. That's the character of God. You can find the promises everywhere, and you've got to take them and squeeze the life out of them. Not just know them and be able to spout them off and write them down, but to squeeze the life out of them. Because there's juice in there that when you drink it in, quenches your thirst and provides energy and fuel for you. You do this with God and his promises for the sake of yourself, for the sake of building in yourself the assurance this is who God is, this is how he is for me, this is how he will be for me. So do you do that? Do you take the promises of God and squeeze the life out of them? Meditate on him and who he is. Meditate on his, meditate on his grace for you. And then second, second, not first, this is second, you must behave in a way that leans into, that depends on this God. And here's, here's a way to, to test that. You lean into him in a way that, that if he's not true and if it's all a myth, You'd be vulnerable to the world at its mercy and therefore destroyed. That's how you can tell you're leaning on something. Like, I'm not actually leaning on the podium. It just looks like I am. I'm, not, I'm leaning on the podium only if the podium like, falls and then I fall. So are you leaning on this God in such a way that if he actually was undependable, a myth, that you'd be out there vulnerable and people would destroy you and you'd be lost. That's what it may feel like to start speaking the truth and behaving with integrity and revealing who you actually are. That may be what it feels like. That's actually what trusting God looks like. Behave in a way that leans into sincerity and integrity, which would leave you vulnerable if God was not true. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be wise. I mean, there's some ways that you should withhold things from people. who Be wise around serpents, yeah. I'm not saying we shouldn't be wise. I'm saying we shouldn't deceive. Dodge, lack integrity. That's something to be proud of before God. But we can be proud of this, a life changed by the grace of God, seen and trusted. That's what we boast in. This is who I am. And what I am is all due to you. It is by your grace. Praise be to his name. The life we want, a life that's good for us and for others, a life worth boasting in. May God make us that. Let me pray. Father, we need you to make us like this because it is not natural to our human natures. We are born to self-protect and cover and shield. Ever since the fall in the garden, we've been covering up, protecting. Will you please press into your people here truth about who you are, the truth about your love for us and your trustworthiness, your dependability.
Press that into us and give each of your people here strong inclination to keep pressing on the promises, to squeeze life out of them. And then shape us to behave in the world like you are. To be like you for the sake of your honor and for the sake of other people and really for our own good. We need you to do that for us, so please do. We trust ourselves to you, Lord, and pray you'd make us people and make us a church like that. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.